to another edition of Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, and if nobody comes down here right now and buys a camel in the next hour, I'm going to club this baby seal. That's right, I'm going to club this seal to make a better deal. You'll know I'll do it too, because we're watching Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today, we're talking about Minute 10, which begins with an extended look at the sort of people who frequent Barter Town, and it ends with Max being dragged over to uh, what passes for an elevator in this place. It elevates. That it does. That it does. We will get our fair share of time to talk about the elevator on Wednesday's episode. Because, I mean, flash forward to minute 11, that elevator is like 90% of that minute. But we don't have to worry about that elevator just yet because we are just barely walking through the gates of Barter Town, getting the extension of the shot that we ended last Friday's episode with. One thing we get more of a look at is the guy on stilts changing the light bulbs. And... I was thinking about this and this job that this person has seems like he's going about it almost the most complicated way possible. Or, <laughs> or he's going about it in the most efficient way because his job is to go around, replace light bulbs, which we see for a fact here. I think on Friday we were guessing that he was changing light bulbs. Well, here we see exactly that's what he's doing. Now, think of a situation where you've got to climb up, let's say, a ladder and change a tall bulb. Well, if you've got a constantly moving throng of people walking by, getting in your way, setting up a ladder is going to be just a hassle. Just a huge hassle. So, alternatively, strap on a pair of stilts, walk through the marketplace. I mean, everyone's going to be able to see you coming. They're going to be very aware of you. So, sure, you're probably going to get jostled a bit, but you don't have to carry a ladder, which, I mean, I carry ladders a lot at work because I have to get up to tall places and I convince them to buy me a shorter ladder because I'm a fairly tall guy. I don't need to carry a six-foot ladder around, but carrying any height of ladder can be really frustrating when you've got to deal with a crowd of people. I just realized you you walk around with ladders to change light bulbs. Yes, I do. Yes, you do. Okay. I contend a third option. Okay. Other than stilts or carrying around a cumbersome ladder, because I agree it is cumbersome. I scoured the internet for this third option that is feasible for the world that they are living in. They make claw gripper things that are on telescopic poles. Oh yeah, I forgot about that those. That kind of claw around the light bulb. You unscrew it, bring it back down to you put the new bulb in, telescope it back up, and screw the new light bulb in. There are plenty of recipes, instructions. <laughs> Building instructions, I think, is the word, the yes. phrase you're looking for. For DIY at-home stuff that involves a stick of whatever kind, duct tape, and a plastic soda bottle. Okay. Now, to the efficacy, I cannot speak. But the people who were writing these instructions made it sound like, yeah, this works. Hmm. And I found 
found one that didn't really do a lot of explaining how it worked or how to make it, but it was just a simple picture. It was from MacGyverisms.com. Good start. Yes. And they were actually drawing attention to a magazine article from the 40s or 50s where Kid had sketched out this idea that he had to solve the same problem. His sketch was just a cup of some kind. It was a drawing, so it was hard to tell if it was like a plastic cup or a paper cup. Some kind of cup taped to the side of a pole. And then you just stick it up there, use it to unwind the light bulb. That sounds like something a kid would think up. Yes, it They're always oversimplifying things. If it works, it's not oversimplified. My point being, (laughs) a contraption like this could be made with things that are still around. Yeah. In the wasteland. And this guy could avoid walking around on stilts and the dangers involved in that because like you said he's walking through the crowd getting jostled how many times do you think he gets pushed over the one thing going for him along that line of thinking he's been pushed down zero times because he's still up and walking around that's the only redeeming aspect that can answer for that line of questioning he hasn't fallen down yet you know what he needs he needs to flash forward to fury road and get an extra pair of stilts for his hands like the dudes stilting through the bog in that one uh, nighttime scene. I agree that that would be more steady and safer, but then he wouldn't have his hands free to, you know, change the light bulbs. Let's see, that's where you get the stilts where the you've forearm. got the arm arm cuff yes. and then the arm handle like that one doctor from ER. Yes. I don't really know what those, if there's like a special word for those types. Yeah, of... they're forearm crutches. Oh, okay. <laughs> Plus, if he's got the forearm crutches to go with his stilts, he can be the giraffe in barter town's production of the lion king stage show well you got me there another cool thing that we see in this initial shot over to the right side of the frame you can see a motorized vehicle driving up a dirt ramp so not only are there vehicles outside of barter town but they're also inside as well that definitely supports the idea that there must be a larger entrance for oversized Mm -hmm. items anything larger than a person anything bigger than bread box Now, when we were walking up to Barter Town, we didn't really talk too much about this set. I basically mentioned that it was an old abandoned quarry, but it's so much more than that. I found an article from pastlivesofthenearfuture.com. This guy wrote up a whole article about this set, specifically the location, the state brickworks at Homebush. This is from the article that I was reading. I pulled out a bunch of snippets, so I'm going to read from that for a little bit. The state brickworks at Homebush was established established by the New South Wales government in 1911 to provide for the demand for public housing and, as the author of the article puts it, shatter the stranglehold private owners had on the brickmaking industry because no one makes money without the New South Wales government getting a piece of the action. (laughs) He goes on to write, This greedy plan backfired at the onset of the Great Depression because, you know, Great Depression was terrible for literally everybody. When demand plummeted and the site started operating at a major loss, it was sold to a private firm in 1936 and closed soon after. The article continues. Following World War II, during which time the site had been used as an ammunitions depot by the Navy, the New South Wales government sensed an opportunity to make money and reopened the brick pit just in time for the second housing boom. 
home. The site even had its own train station for workers to use, which opened in 1939. During the 60s, 70s, and 80s, which is my perfect programming schedule for a radio station, the Brickworks was known by a different name to young hoons and petrol heads looking to blow off some steam on a Friday or Saturday night. Brickies was a hot destination for drag racers setting off from the Big Chief's burger joint on Parramatta Road, tearing off up Underwood Road in their Monaros towards Brickies Hill. The circuit can be seen in the 1977 film The F.J. Holden, and I added that to our possible hiatus list because, you know, Excellent. it takes place in and around Bartertown. Yeah. So... When the boom died down, the housing boom that I mentioned, the money dried up and the brickworks was clumped in the same basket as the increasingly irrelevant state abattoirs and the volatile roads industrial area. It had to go. But before it did, the crew of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome chose the site as a filming location. They made a quip in the article that I didn't copy over about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome possibly being The Conqueror 2. And I was confused by this reference because I was not aware of a movie called The Conqueror 2. They were referring, of course, to the John Wayne movie, The Conqueror, where he plays Genghis Khan, possibly one of the worst casting choices ever. But The Conqueror was filmed on land that had been, mm, let's just say, tested for volatile weapons. And a lot of the people who worked on that movie ended up getting cancer and dying of said cancer because they spent so much time in that area. So the author was talking about how the quarry, the brickworks were so volatile that people really shouldn't have been hanging out in there. But anyway, we continue. In 1988, the brickworks were closed for good. Like the rest of the state-owned Homebush Industrial Zone, it was included in plans to reshape the area into the Sydney Olympic Stadium in 1992. The brick pit was to become the tennis center, but the local wildlife had other ideas, and this is where the story gets interesting. The green and golden bell frog was nearing extinction by 1992. Once abundant in Sydney, numbers had fallen so low that a special breeding program was established at Taronga Zoo in the hope that the frog could be saved. As preliminary work was being done, 300 of the small frogs were discovered living in the quarry. As the rest of industrial homebush was transformed for the Olympics, the brick pit itself followed suit, undergoing heavy remediation. It's now an environmental feature of the Olympic Park and features a wonderful ring walk, a walkway suspended above the former brickwork site complete with a giant pond. The frogs are no longer considered endangered, but they still have a long way to go. That reminds me that we haven't really talked about shooting location in the context of the rest of the continent to get an idea of like where they are but you mentioned that it was part of the sydney games so it must have been relatively close to sydney right it was right in sydney they shot barter town itself like i said right over by the olympic park the wide open wasteland shots were over by cooper petty but for these big setting shots mm -hmm. instead of hauling everything out into the desert like they did for road warrior they had the option of filming close by to civilization so they did and they had the money to do it the interesting thing about this location for thunderdome is that they do a very good job of hiding the modernity around the quarry with the exception of a tiny sliver of horizon when we initially see the barter town sign we already passed the minute but you can see peeking up over the ridge 
the tiniest bit of, I think they're either industrial towers or maybe some a green tree or two, but you can just barely peek over the top of that ridge and see the rest of that industrial homebush area. Okay. I like this idea that they're just outside Sydney in the context of the story of Thunderdome, because in the very end, we see the group of kids go to Sydney, to the ruins of Sydney. Now, don't get me wrong. In the context of the story, yes. they're still out in the middle of the desert. Yes. In the Cooper Petty area. Yes. But for practical reasons, behind the scenes, they're in Sydney. Right. I just, I like the idea that there is a connection there. Oh, okay. <laughs> wanted to make sure I wasn't making it sound like geography was all screwy. If people are interested in seeing more pictures of the Barter Town set, MadMaxMovies.com has a really good page with just several shots taken by a fan. The fan, a guy named David Seymour, sent all these pictures to MadMaxMovies.com because when they were filming the movie, his buddy came over, poked him and said, hey, grab your camera. We're going to go peek at a movie set. And they drew drove over to the brickworks and they crawled up along the ridge because there was production <laughs> managers keeping an eye on the set and they got yelled at a couple of times but they snapped a bunch of photos and you can see where all the buildings are and how everything's laid out it's really cool oh nice so I'll have to post a link to the listener page so people can check it out. So now that we're done talking about that first shot of the minute, we switch our perspective and we start going along the main avenue and we're looking at people. And the first clump of folks that we see is a tattoo artist, his client, and a bunch of people just standing around. And while it doesn't surprise me that tattoos are still a thing in the post-apocalypse, because I mean, everyone knows tattoos are cool. Cool people have tattoos. Shut up. Tattoos have always been a thing. I know. But what does surprise me is the fact that the artist here is still using a very modern tattoo machine. You can hear the buzzing and whirring and whatnot. And I would have expected the fine components to either run out or break down this far after the collapse. But I'm sure that this guy is in the habit of running his machine off of whatever power grid Auntie's set up in the town. And he probably isn't super concerned with the more hygienic practices, considering that, you know, it's the post-apocalypse, so I don't think that many people are really worried about infections and pathogens because they could get lost in the desert the next day and get eaten by a radioactive vulture. So you might as well have a cool tattoo. Yeah. So I wasn't concerned about this tattoo machine until you brought it up. I'm fully on board that he is hooked into the town's power supply. That's incredibly valid. What I question is his source of tattoo ink and the feasibility of that machine still running properly. Right. Because in any machine, there are hoses and gaskets and rubber parts that wear out that have to be replaced. Machines don't just run forever on their own. Right. You have to maintain them. And those tattoo needles, they are very precise. They're more or less funky little magnet contraptions that move the needle around. So that's not something that is just macro. I fully expected a post-apocalyptic tattoo artist to be using the old stick and hammer method that you see in like island cultures and whatnot that you see in moana yes in moana but also in other things (laughs) i've seen more than just moana as far as polynesian culture stuff i'm trying to think if i've seen traditional pre-tattoo machine tattooing nothing comes to mind i mean all you really need to do to get a tattoo is to force ink down into the skin preferably with a needle because you know makes a smaller hole yeah i mean people all over the world have been getting tattoos since way before the invention of magnets 
magnets. So, or the manufacturing of magnets, I should say. You satisfied? <laughs> yes. You gave me a face. I did. Okay. <laughs> I have to agree. I'm not surprised that someone's getting a tattoo. I'm surprised they're using a modern tattoo machine still. You know what is surprising? Hmm. That you can make tattoo ink out of natural resources and that... I think it was Romans who had a ingredient for all natural tattoo ink. I didn't memorize the recipe. I just kind of noted it in my research. Well, I would think out of all the tattoos that have ever been applied in all of history, most of them have been applied without the use of a modern machine. Yeah. And without the use of modern chemicals and whatnot. So I I would say lots and lots and lots of cultures and peoples have had recipes for all-natural tattoo ink. Whatever the recipe, the lady who's getting a tattoo definitely has the beginnings of quite an impressive sleeve because she's got the entirety of her shoulder covered, and that tattoo artist is working his way down her arm. And she's got some really bright blue on there. I think there's also like some red, but very bright we don't really linger on it too long because we're pushing through this crowd into the next little stall, which I guess is a barbershop because there is a guy sitting in a chair. I'm assuming he's a guard because he's got the car reflector shoulder pads. Yeah. But he's getting a uh, mohawk done. I was wondering about this mohawk because it's pretty clear that he is getting shaved into the shape of a mohawk, but it doesn't look like he has much hair that's being left behind in the mohawk place. <laughs> like he just started trying to do a mohawk. Yeah. Mohawks take time and doesn't look like he's been working on it very long. Maybe he's in the program where you start growing your own mohawk so you don't have to wear the feather one. Right. Trying to graduate from one level to another. <laughs> the feathery mohawk, it makes my head sweaty. I'm going to grow my own. Yeah. Good luck with that. I feel like the guy getting his head shaved into a mohawk is kind of a callback to Wes. Yes. Yes, I agree. I did wonder. Wes was getting his head shaved without any sort of uh, moisturizer or lubricant or hydration, no sort of cream or anything. And this guy's got shaving cream all over his head. If not shaving cream, at least some sort of soap. Yeah, that's probably more accurate. I doubt they actually had shaving cream, some sort of lather. So I don't know. It seems a little less street cred than Wes. <laughs> I think we're not so much worried about street <laughs> cred. I think we're just supposed to be impressed with the fact that they have it. Yeah. Besides, razor burn is not fun. Shaving without any sort of like cream or lubricant or anything like that, that's not a thing to brag about. Oh, that's I know. Just, that's just be, you know, dumb or lazy. Pick, Take your pick. Mm, usually lazy for me. So we walk right by the dude getting his head shaved and we get another real good look at iron bar and i'm watching his buki mask attachments hair that's a lot of qualifiers there but i'm watching this hair swish back and forth over his shoulders and behind his head and i'm wondering if one of the reasons he wears that all the time or well, one of the other reasons i should say is because the hair serves the same purpose as those corks hanging on strings that we see from wide brim hats oh. if it's a another way to keep the bugs away okay that's an interesting idea does it really swish around enough i mean it's, do you think doesn't swish around in front of his face which is where i'm starting to be a little wary of this theory but as i watched it happen i thought 
Eh, maybe. Figured I'd bring it up. Yeah, maybe. It's not a horrible idea by any means. Right. You know what else isn't a horrible idea? What's that? The fact that the collector is having one of the guards behind him hold up an umbrella to keep him out of the sun because he is a pasty guy. He's red in areas. I'm assuming he burns easily. But the dude spends all day in a cave, or at least a man-made cave. So I imagine he doesn't necessarily go out in the sun a whole lot. So it makes sense that he would have, I don't know if it's just one umbrella or if it's two umbrellas held in the same hand or if it's one of those novelty double umbrellas that you can buy online but it's some sort of canopy that the guard is just carrying behind him well the collector seems to be a very prominent member of this society with sway and commands respect he has the ability to just walk right up to the penthouse Mm -hmm. so yeah the person who was carrying his canopy do you think that was a dedicated bodyguard could be i mean it makes sense that he would have one specific guard that is supposed to protect him he is the collector he's the gatekeeper for town so sure it's nice to have the guards around so if someone starts threatening the collector that they can step forward and do a fancy spinning knife display but at the same time having someone that's literally right there be a whole lot more effective yes because under normal circumstances iron bar and his particular group are not in that cave they're i don't know they seem to be just wandering about Mm -hmm. looking for suspicious persons which is max then that's what drew them into the cave so I think normal circumstances is the collector and however many personal bodyguards he has one or two maybe yeah Yeah. now as we watch this group continue along we sweep past everyone and they keep walking before we pan over to find Jedediah hiding behind a stall of some kind we see a couple of guys trying to ride a tandem bicycle I say trying and I'm assuming that because it's so crowded they're really not succeeding i just thought it was funny to see because they're trying to get going but they end up waddling and it's like it's hard to double your pleasure without double mint gum (laughs) i'll take that that was at least a little bit of a laugh i'll take that no i'm laughing more because it was a little dirty than anything else but you know anyway we're panning over and we're going to get our concrete confirmation that this is indeed the place that Max is going to be able to find his camel and his vehicles because here's Jedediah hiding behind a stand peeking out at Max. We didn't really have any sort of reason to believe aside from Max following some tracks and making some assumptions, but there was nothing concrete saying this is the exact place where Max is going to find his stuff. He could be walking into a place and saying I'm here for my vehicle and my camels and The collector was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Because why would the collector know what Max is talking about? He could just walk into any old place and say, I'm here for my stolen goods. It very well could be that they just don't have his stolen goods. Right. So now we have a solid connection Mm -hmm. that the goods are here. Jedediah, though, I guess it's more of an editing issue for me. The timing of his peeking out and smiling is just so late. (laughs) <laughs> Max is like halfway across Bartertown by now. It just seems like Jedediah was too far away from where Max passed by. Mm. And it took him too long to stick his head out and smile like, hey, hey, I got it. I'm going to get away with it. Okay. I don't know. I think it was an editing thing for me. If I could change one thing about this sequence, 
I would want Max to lay eyes on Jedediah because I don't think between getting knocked off his cart and finding Jedediah at the end of the movie, can you think of any instance in which Max looks at Jedediah and acknowledges in some way that he's the one that knocked him off his cart? No, I don't think so. Yeah. And they come into such close proximity to each other a couple of times, kind of right now, although not that close to each other. And it would have been nice for some kind of recognition. Yeah. I was reading around on different sites because I try to do research, but at the end of the movie, when Max and the waiting ones stumble upon Jedediah Jr. and follow him down into his cave thing, Max runs into Jedediah, points at him and says, it's your lucky day, you've got a plane. Jedediah's like, I do? And I'm like, Max doesn't know what Jedediah looks like when Jedediah knocks him off that cart. No, and by the time Jedediah jumps down from the plane to the cart, Max is already pretty far behind. Yeah, so unless he got a good look at Jedediah from behind when Jedediah was jumping off that plane, which we don't really have a confirmation of, I'd say. No. Maybe if I go back and take a really close look at it, can figure it out. But for all intents and purposes, Max really doesn't know what the dude who stole his wagon looks like. So there's going to be some jumps in logic later on in the movie that we're going to have to gloss over a little bit. Right. Well, you know, we've already had some jumps in physics. Yeah. So a little jump in logic's not really a big deal. Not that bad. Nothing we can't handle. So let's jump over into the next shot. We get a nice progression. Max is walking along and then he notices something and he runs up to an auction stage where he sees all of his camels. This is Dr. Dealgood's auction stage. He's up there talking about these beautiful animals that he's got in front of his stage. I love that the stage is called the House of Good Deals, and he's got his two um, lovely assistants, like he's a magician or something like that. Apparently, these assistants are named in the book. Did you notice? Okay, I gotta look it up real quick, but I'm pretty sure it's Dumb and Dumber. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding you, but I'm gonna look it up. I remember being amused that it's a reference to a movie that hadn't been created yet and wondering if the movie took the phrase Dumb and Dumber from... From that movie? From this movie. Except in the movie, they're never called Dumb and Dumber. Right, they're not named. This is just their names in the... Oh, 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 okay, I was completely wrong. In the novelization, they're called Tweedledee and Tweedledummer. Oh, like an Alice in Wonderland reference. Yes. Gotcha. Okay, well, it's nifty. I didn't expect that type of thing to pop up. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that that is presented as their actual names, not as what Max is calling them in his head. Okay. Yeah, that's like their real names. All right. Well, I mean, everybody has funny names in the apocalypse. I guess so, but theirs is insulting. Yeah, but they seem to be the sort of chorus girl type. They're just there to show off the goods. Like, not, not, not like their goods, like the goods that are being auctioned. That's what I meant. They're there to accentuate Dr. Dealgood. Okay. Like later on, when we actually get into the dome, they're going to be showing off some of the weapons that they can use. It's it's that sort of thing. Don't, mm-hmm. don't twist me around. I didn't say anything. You were looking at me. I look at you a lot. Yes, you do. I am not a camel expert. I do not claim to be one. I am not a drama dairyologist. Very nice. I'm just going to go with that one. But I still feel that Dr. Dealgood is exaggerating some of the claims that he's making about these camels. For instance, he says that the camel is the vehicle that sent Detroit broke. It also apparently gets 800 miles to the gallon. That it's the ship of the desert with independent suspension, power steering, and no emission control. Now... 
That last one, I believe, because that is a poop joke. Yes. Now, there's a flaw in my notes that this scene is cut from one side of the page to the other. So I'm going to keep flipping it back and forth. So the independent suspension, that seems relatively accurate. Power steering? Absolutely no way. Have you ever driven a car with no power steering? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like you have to pull on the steering wheel to get it to turn. It's hard work. And I would imagine that... Trying to steer a camel is similar. Not like hard work, but you have to work at it. You have to convince the animal to do what you want it to. Yeah. Not like power steering where it's easy. And there are plenty of other reasons that Detroit went broke. It wasn't because of the camel. <laughs> I did really appreciate Dr. Deal Good's sales tactics. He used Detroit to reference cars in general. Mm -hmm. And it made me wonder if the city of Detroit maintained its reputation as a manufacturing city even after all of this time, or if that reputation has warped over time. Well, at the very least, Detroit was always known as the Motor City, just like by nickname. Right. So do you think that reputation has survived this long? If for no other reason than just, you know, word of mouth, nickname, legend, like, you know, perish the City of Lights, New York, the Big Apple, Philadelphia, the City of Brotherly Love. You know, these little nicknames and idioms. And Boston is Beantown. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sold on that. Mostly because later on when we meet the kids, their language has been warped over time. Because nobody kept records of what language was supposed to sound like. So if the purpose behind the reputation is gone, if they're no longer making cars, how long is that reputation going to survive? Well, these are still first generation wasteland. These are still people who would have heard about Detroit on the nightly news before the collapse. Okay. The no waiting ones are second generation. Right. And the ones who are first generation were very, very small. Okay. This reminds me of the debate you and I have about the man in the mountain. The state of New Hampshire, our logo is the man in the mountain, except that he fell off the mountain and there's no longer a face in the mountain. So how long are we going to hold on to this icon of the man in the mountain when it doesn't exist anymore? And I think the answer is the same. We're still first generation man of the mountainers. So <laughs> as long as we're around to remember yep it'll survive they say that there are two deaths the first when your physical form perishes the second is the last time someone utters your name so the old man in the mountain has died one death and he will die a second death when people stop talking about him this is literally is... just a stone face that you can really only see from one angle and it fell off the cliffside a couple of years ago uh, more than a couple but that's beside the point so are you saying that I should drop it or I'm going to keep it alive Is that you, all on my own? You may complain <laughs> about people remembering it and you complaining about people remembering it may be the thing that keeps people remembering it. Yeah, that and our license plates. Yep. Okay. So Dr. Dealgood is played by Edwin Hodgman. He was born on June 26, 1935 in Alberton, South Australia. Despite being in his 80s, he is still listed as a voice actor through SA Casting in Adelaide. So you can still hire him to do voiceover stuff for like commercials and things. Oh, you know what we should have done? We should have hired him to read our outro. I don't know if we have that kind of money. No, I don't think we do. <laughs> it's a nice idea though. Maybe to, someday we'll have that kind of money. To legitimately hire a real actor. <laughs> to read like 10 I mean, lines. I mean, let's be real. Our intro, I paid like 20 bucks for because it's like a 30 second chunk. And the only reason we have our outro is because I asked nicely. <laughs> <laughs>
If it wasn't for our Patreon supporters, we would probably still be making nil on this. Yes. So Hodgman first appeared in the 1967 TV movie Love and War before making the rounds on several Australian crime dramas, including familiar names such as Matlock Police, Homicide, and Division 4. Following Beyond Thunderdome, Hodgman played Sir in 1986's Playing Beady Bow, which you may recognize the name of because we mentioned it back in Minute 50 of Road Warrior when we were talking about our resident camping enthusiast, Ann Jones. Hodgman's most recent credit is from 2016 in the TV show The Kettering Incident, where he played Pop Sullivan. His top four on IMDb start with Thunderdome, move on to the 1996 movie Shine, where he played a Soviet society secretary, 1996's Son on the Stubble, where he played Mr. Taylor, and 1985's Robbery Under Arms, where he played Jack Benson. I have not seen any of those, right, aside I'm, from Thunderdome. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of, to comment on some of his work, and I really don't know any of it. You can go on the website for essay casting in Adelaide, and you can find his voiceover reel, and it's just him reading ad copy. I wonder how much it would cost to get him to read for us. I say, you can send, send them an email. Send them an ask. Although, they might do everything over the phone, which can get a little tricky for us over here in the States, but I say, if you're feeling ambitious, you're more than welcome to it. I hate talking on the phone, so <laughs> that's my excuse. This minute wraps up with Max being pulled away from the auction stage. He is trying to interrupt the auction. He's trying to get Dr. Dealgood's attention. He's trying to get information about these camels, but the guards are not having it. And so they physically drag him over to the elevator that goes up to Auntie's penthouse. And we more or less spend the last five seconds of this minute and the first couple seconds of our next minute getting into this elevator. So we'll save all of that elevating talk for next time. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 10 of beyond thunderdome see you next time Over!